You are listening to First in Human, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vile, a tech-enabled CRO. Hosted by Simon Burns, CEO and co-founder. Featuring special guest host, Rich McCormick, EVP of Clinical Strategy and Head of Oncology. In this episode, we connect with Jonathan Thon, CEO and founder of StormBio. Stay tuned to learn more about Thon's journey from academia to entrepreneurship, breakthroughs in platelet production, and innovative use of extracellular vesicles in gene therapy at StormBio. Hi, I'm Rich McCormick, Executive Vice President of Clinical Strategy here at Bio. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming CEO and founder of StormBio, Jonathan Thon, to our first in human podcast. Hi, Jonathan. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Happy to. I'm Jonathan. I'm the CEO, founder of StormBio, as you've said. I was an academic scientist before becoming an entrepreneur. I was a professor at Harvard Medical School for a number of years, founded my first biotech company out of my academic lab, and joined that company as its CEO and chief scientific officer. Ran that company for almost a decade. About three years ago, stepped away from that company and found Storm, which is my second biotech company. Can you tell us a little more about your journey from being a professor and lecturer at Harvard Medical School to becoming an accomplished biotech entrepreneur? And as you mentioned in your intro, it'd be interesting to hear about your transition from CEO and CSO at Platelet Biosciences. Well, the story really begins with my PhD work at UBC. So I'm Canadian. University of British Columbia is a Canadian university that I did my graduate school studies at. And during grad school, I was working with Dana Devine, who's the chief medical officer for Canadian Blood Services. Now, Dana was studying what was called the platelet storage lesion, or this characteristic of blood platelets to go bad after a very short period of time in storage, really three days. And platelets, critically important, they're the band-aids of the bloodstream. And I was tasked with trying to understand how to extend the lifespan of a platelet unit beyond three, four days. Now, we did a lot of tremendous work in that lab, but it became pretty obvious to me that the solution wasn't to extend lifespan by a day or two. The solution here was to disconnect the product from the donor and make human platelets. And so it was with that idea that I actually came to Harvard initially as a postdoc, developed a microfluidic device to make platelets, which was one of the first cell therapies that were being created at the time. And during the course of that work was promoted to a professor at the university. Now, the work advanced to a point in my academic lab where the next steps were ones that required a little bit more infrastructure and more of a commercial focus. So scale up, release a product, regulatory process, things that the university or the academic lab really wasn't set up to do or do most effectively. Now, I didn't go into my academic career thinking I was going to become a CEO. Quite the opposite. I had never taken a business course up until that point. But it was also pretty obvious to me that at this point, the technology we're building, a cell therapy, was way too early to out-license to any company. Quite frankly, the conversations I was having with investors at the time were ones around whether this was a medical device or a drug small molecule. And I was telling them it was neither one of those things. And I was being told that if it was neither one of those things, it wasn't a thing. And I was like, no, (laughs) it is a thing. It's just not one of those things. So certainly large companies, pharma companies weren't positioned to in-license this technology. Staying at Harvard and continuing this would have meant the rest of my academic career. So probably the next 30, 40 years of my career to do what felt to me we could do over three to five years. But in order to do that, 
I had to create a company of my own. And so Platelet ended up being an experiment in creating a vehicle to translate some of these ideas, discoveries into the market. And then everything else that followed was a very steep learning curve. Oh, that's interesting. So, so your work has involved translating scientific advances into preclinical and clinical stage programs. Can you share an example of a particularly challenging scientific breakthrough that you worked on and you know, how it eventually made its way into practical applications? Well, triggering platelet production was that, right? At the university in my academic lab, we had discovered a way of exposing this parent cell to stresses that would trigger new platelets from being produced. But this was a microfluidic system that we were building it on. So it was roughly the shape of a business card. The channels beneath that business card were a lot smaller still and was initially a two-dimensional device that I had to convert into a three-dimensional device to increase the surface area, to increase the scale. When we converted to a three-dimensional device, we also had to tackle challenges of even distribution of cells and flow across the surface area per channel. And then as we started parallelizing channels, the same thing across multiple channels. So we took up as much real estate as possible within that business card size space. We began stacking business cards, so to speak, and then had to deal with manifolding inputs and collapsing output challenges so that we could flow through a single tube into a larger device, collect the product and pull that all back into a single output flow. In the process of doing that, discovered that media is probably the single most expensive component of any cell culture process. And we were wasting a lot of it through single perfusion of media through our device. And so had to develop technologies and, and strategies to recirculate media. And as devices got larger, recognized that it was too much work for one scientist, two scientists, PhD level scientists to be running over the span of one to two days. And quite frankly, that was not a scalable solution. So had to automate the process, had to miniaturize the footprints as well so that we could fit more devices into a smaller surface area, had to adapt the manufacturing so that we could move from what were initially machined devices, which were easy to iterate on, but expensive per device to microinjection molded systems that were a lot more expensive up front, but became pennies on the dollar when you're manufacturing thousands of these devices at a go. And then refining the operating conditions to optimize efficiency and yield. So <laughs> as I'm responding to your question, I'm recognizing that in retrospect, we probably did a lot of work, <laughs> but all of those things were important in, in scaling up what was a promising initial technology, but turning it into a practical application. Yeah, that's great. So a notable achievement, as you mentioned, is the production of functional human platelets from stem cells. So you talk a lot about the discovery. How do you envision this breakthrough impacting the medical field in the future? Platelets are necessary anytime anyone goes under the knife, requiring large quantities of blood. If they're in surgery, chemotherapy, receiving cancer treatment, childbirth, accidents, war, there are tremendous implications to platelet availability. And the challenge here was, is that if you're in a civilian environment, you've got huge shortages in long weekends, civic holidays, particularly warm or cold days where donors don't go out to donate blood because the entire system is dependent on volunteer donors. What we discovered as well as we were building the company is that if you're thinking about more international military systems, the movement of blood products and specifically the movement of platelets telegraphs, military engagements, 
And countries watch for this, right? It telegraphs where something is going to happen that's meaningful because there's not enough storage time in that product to bank it in advanced of an incursion or, or a defensive position. So this is a tremendously important product that had tremendous implications, both in civilian and military applications. And, you know, the initial idea or the initial foundation of that company, of Platelet, was based around producing these places, making them available so that they could solve those challenges. One of the interesting things that I was also able to inject into the company, I think it's very rare, especially for an early technology like this one, that anyone gets an opportunity to introduce a second idea into a company. But I was fortunate enough to get a second idea into the company before I left and turned leadership over to who followed me at Platelet while I went on to found Storm. And the second idea was one around cancer or oncological applications. So cancer cells will actually coat themselves in platelets to hide from the immune system. And they use that coating of platelets to help them metastasize inside the body. And so the idea went, if we could load platelets with anti-cancer drugs, we could also leverage that innate biology and, and that direct contact of platelets with cancer cells to help deliver anti-cancer agents and also prevent metastasis and kill cancer cells before you know they actually took hold. So at Storm Bio, you're leveraging extracellular vesicles or EVs to deliver gene therapy. Could you explain how this approach differs from traditional gene therapy methods and what advantages it offers? Definitely. For starters, the vesicles that we're making, they're cell-derived vesicles. The vesicles that we're making are targeted and they bypass the liver in vivo. Now, this is a big fucking deal. <laughs> and I say that seriously because when we talk about the state of the arts, you know, viruses, lipid nanoparticles, and we talk about targeted, what we mean to say is that 90, 95% of the product ends up in the liver and maybe 2% end up in the target of interest. What we have got here at Storm is a delivery platform that bypasses the liver in its entirety. And that has huge implications in safety and dose. Now, if that's the primary differentiator, the second differentiator here is that these vesicles are quite a bit larger. They're as large as the largest viruses. What that means practically for us is that they've got a large carrying capacity. We can fit bigger cargo in. We have successfully put in DNA, RNA, RNPs, and CRISPR-Cas9 complexes. We've been able to multiplex multiple different modalities of asset into the same vesicles. This is important because editors like Prime, dual flap editors, they're getting larger and they're not fitting into conventional delivery platforms. As the field starts moving away from just single base pair mutation defects into more complex genetic diseases, we're going to need to multiplex different kinds of cargo into the same vesicle to go after those more complex diseases. And in order to do that, you need to be able to package them in the delivery platform. And the third sort of interesting component to this as well, which we found, is that in addition to controlling how many vesicles we inject per animal, per person, which is the conventional definition of dose, we can also modulate how many copies of cargo we put per vesicle, which is a really interesting independent lever that can help modulate dosing. And you can imagine scenarios where if you're delivering an editor, you may not want a lot of copies of that editor per vesicle, but you may want a lot of vesicles to blanket canvas a number of cells. Whereas if you're delivering a DNA or a messenger RNA for wild-type protein expression, 
you may want a tremendous amount of cargo per vesicle so that you increase as much as possible the amount of protein that's being expressed on delivery. So that's a really interesting lever that we can play with. And then the third point here is that these vesicles are innately immune privileged, which means that practically we can repeat dose with them. Now, our field has for the longest time talked about one and done therapies for gene therapy, but one and done practically is tail wagging dog. You know, we're talking about one and done therapies because we can't come in with a second dose or a third dose. But if we could, and we can, this really opens up the landscape in terms of the diseases that you can go after, which is pretty much everything else, and the approaches you can take to go after those diseases. Now, there is one more point I want to make here, and I think this is tremendously exciting. It really requires an understanding of how the gene therapy market has developed to date. But I think one of the most exciting pieces about the platform we're building is the breakthrough and the simplicity, the versatility, and the scalability of the manufacturing platform itself and the implications that has on COGS. And I'm hopeful that we can talk a little bit more about that in some of the next questions, because what we can do with our manufacturing platform is produce unloaded vesicles as a single off-the-shelf banked product. And because the loading of our vesicles happens exogenously, we can have a single common bank for multiple drug products. What that means is that you can use the same product from one clinical application to another and keep the same drug master file. And that I think is really, really exciting. I mean, it means that preclinical clinical data from one study can be repurposed for a different disease. It means that you only need to update the clinical protocol as you move from one clinical study to a different clinical study. And it means that you're able to keep the cost of development really low. And what I was mentioning about understanding of the nuance in the field is that investors, as they think about cell and gene therapy, they're primarily concerned with this idea that cell and gene therapy companies require approaches that cost huge amounts of money, huge amounts of investments in preclinical studies before a company can hit its clinical proof of concept milestones. That's been a gating issue for our space. What we've got here is a platform that has the potential to limit the validation of cell and gene therapies to talks and efficiency of cargo independent from the delivery platform itself. And that has the capacity of massively reducing the cost of development for partners. I'm going to end this with just one more point, and I'm going to quote Peter Marks, who's the director of the Center for Biologics Evaluation Research at the FDA. He gave a presentation at the meeting of the NASA this last year, and at that meeting, he said that if we could get this paradigm to work, rather than having manufacturer go back and do all of the preclinical toxicology and give us all the manufacturing information each time they submit something, they would just cross-reference. And this would allow us to focus on innovation that's going to benefit people. He said, we'd start by allowing an individual company to leverage the information from one application to another. And then if that's working well, we can consider expanding that concept further. And I think that's really at the heart of what we're trying to build with Storm. Yeah, that's really exciting. I really appreciate that level of insight. Uh, so you mentioned being at a, at a conference recently, and, and I know that you do a fair amount of speaking, both you know conferences and meetings worldwide. So maybe could you share a piece of advice that you would emphasize when speaking with an aspiring scientist or entrepreneur you know, that's in the biotech industry? Do it. 
Maybe three things I can share. The first is do it. There are all the reasons in the world that everyone will highlight regularly for why something shouldn't exist or couldn't work. But if you can see a path whereby it can, you should do it. You know, for all the reasons everyone keeps pointing out that these breakthroughs can't or shouldn't exist, they're obviously not going to exist without you. And because no one else can see it, but you can, you need to pave that path forward and make it possible for others to follow suit. You know, if you're wrong, you tried, you gave it a great shot and the idea was tested. If you're right, you know, you've changed everything and that's worth doing. I think that's the first. That's probably if there's a single take home, it's that. You know, the second I would say is that communication is key, that people can't see what you see is inherent, but that's not on them. That's on you. You know, it's your job to make it possible for them to see it so that they can understand and they can support. And communication isn't something anyone's naturally born with. You know, some of us are a little bit better than others, but for the most part, it's a practice skill and one that you should practice so you can get better at it. And the third, and this is going to sound a little bit tongue in cheek, but you need to understand and get comfortable with a company's natural arc. And, and I tell this to young entrepreneurs a lot, that this does require checking your ego. Now, a mentor once said to me that there are three stages in one's career. You know, the first stage where no one believes that what you are proposing is possible. There's the second stage where people believe it's possible, but no one believes that you're going to be the one that does it. And then there's the third stage where people take for granted the advancement is obvious and no one remembers that you had anything to do with it. <laughs> and that's okay. You need to recognize that that's what success looks like. And you shouldn't do this for your ego, but to bring a new discovery to light. That was great advice. So how about maybe providing some insight into the current landscape of innovative therapies and technologies? And just where do you see the field going over the next five years? The current landscape of biotech, I think, is inextricably tied to markets and financing. And, you know, what can be sometimes a little bit frustrating for all of us is that we keep ping-ponging between these alternate extremes. On one hand, progress will be limited by a dearth in investment. And that's particularly felt when that investment is not going into less popular fields or markets that have fallen out of favor. That's seasonal, right? On the other side of it, you know, this overcapitalization of select companies or specific industries or approaches is also not the answer. You know, it stimulates creativity, innovation, or represses competition. I think the challenge here is that in biotech and in life sciences, industries are dependent on financial markets that are moving on a monthly, daily, hourly pace. Whereas biological innovations to proof of concept, to clinical success, to commercial return on investment happen on five to 10 year timeframes. Five to 10 years is a long time with significant ups and downs. You know, it requires committed investors with long time horizons and significant risk tolerances. And at the risk of likely misquoting Warren Buffett here, someone's sitting in the shade today because someone planted a tree a long time ago. Right? The clinical and commercial successes we're seeing today in gene therapy are being built on investments that were made more than a decade ago. And every one of those are storied companies with moments they felt they wouldn't survive or overcome. Across years, years where industries fell out of favor and have only become popular again because of the staying power of these companies that then finally hit a practical, meaningful milestone and shifted investor interest back into them. And so 
you know, you ask me where the clinical commercial biotech success over the next five, 10 years will be. You know, it's going to be in these companies that were created over this last decade, likely with a deep emphasis in cell therapy and gene therapy and cell and gene delivery. And they will return to favor when the market stabilizes. And those same companies that are able to last through this more difficult period start hitting on some of their meaningful clinical and commercial proof of concepts. So that's great insight. So you are rooted in academia, but also a successful business leader. So how do you balance the pursuit of scientific knowledge and entrepreneurial success? I think there's a place for both. And I think that neither can exist without the other. There's a lot of supporting industries in between. I found it easier, actually, to teach scientists business than to teach business people science. And one thing that I feel can't be emphasized enough is that biotech companies will live and die by their science. And so for biotech companies specifically, I see a tremendous amount of value in having scientists in the CEO and executive suites. What I have taken from my experiences is that we need smart, ambitious, young scientists in both academia and industry and across all of those spaces in between to drive that innovation. And it's in them that we should be investing, not the seasoned executives with multiple exits under their belts. You know, let them be mentors and have these new ideas injecting and driving innovation in their space. Well, that's great. So Jonathan, it's been a pleasure meeting with you today. And thank you for being a great guest on Bile's First in Human podcast. The team here at Bile wishes you and your team at Storm Bile nothing but future success. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, and Google.